cool friends, it's me, Adrian, or Aiden. Either way, I'm still your host and you are still listening to Susto, the podcast of ooky spooky scary stories. Welcome back. Thank you for returning. And if this is your first time, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Susto fam. Y'all, right away, I'm going to be very honest with you. This is my second time recording this episode. I had a microphone issue, so it is <laughs> delayed to the patrons. Very sorry about that. But I will tell you right now, you are getting a video component to this episode. I did this maybe like two or three episodes ago, and I'll explain it later. But either way, if you are a best girlfriend on patreon.com slash podcast, then you have access to that. So yeah, this is my second take for this. I hope that it works or I will cry because I already almost did. Anyway, <laughs> quick updates. I have two more events coming up uh, really quick. One more time, thank you again to the Austin Seance and everybody who attended the event that we held together. That was so much fun. I It was my first time using a Ouija board. Oh, well, I lied. Maybe my second time, but my first time for real using one because the first time I did, it was with a piece of paper and like a piece of glass. I don't know. Anyway, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back. Jake and Albert are amazing. Check out theaustinseance.com. You should subscribe to their zine. And if you're ever in the Austin area, uh, try to go to one of their events. They are true professionals and they put on a great workshop. And I do have two more events coming up. The adult summer camp with the Austin Public Library at the Old Quarry Branch is on August 19th. I think it starts at six, but you can check social medias at Susto Podcast on every platform. I've posted about it already. I'm doing two story time sessions at that event, and it's going to be the first time I ever do any sort of actual live show. The Austin Seance, I was there in person, but this is the first time that I'm doing a live story. I will be retelling stories that I've done on the show before. I, I'm, I'm doing like a thing with a soundboard, and yeah, it's going to be good, I think. And after that, the last weekend of August, the 25th, 26th, and 27th, I am doing the True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival. You can get your tickets at truecrimepodcastfestival.com for 15% off using code SUSTO. Like I said before, many times I will be tabling, so selling some merch and stuff, taking people's stories if they'd like to, or just meeting other creators and podcast lovers. And I am also doing a panel with paranormal putas y'all we're having like meetings and writing outlines and doing run-throughs and shit for this so it's going to be really good i highly suggest that you go check that out if you're going to be there and that's about it for that as always if you have your own scary story that you would like to be featured in a letters from the beyond episode you can email that to me at sustopodcast at gmail.com it doesn't have to be a story it could also be a video or audio recording a photograph anything you think remotely spooky send it to me and i'll share it either on the episode and or on social media. You can also send those to me via DM on social media or in a five-star review wherever you are listening if you're able to write a review. As always, I'm going to ask you to interact with the show wherever you're listening. Like, follow, subscribe, share. Anything like that is the easiest way to support the show and I truly, truly appreciate it. We're going to go ahead and get into it. Uh, As you may have already seen from the episode, this is a resurrection episode. It's it's a new thing that I want to try. This is the second episode that I ever did. I listened through this episode the other day and I thought, wow, I have come such a long way in terms of my editing, my sound design, how comfortable I am on the microphone, uh, the resources that I have to put episodes together. So while I still, you know, of course, love uh, this episode and its originality to Susto, I think I could do better. <laughs> so I am bringing it back back from the dead and resurrecting it. And this is basically like a remastering of this episode. So I'm excited to share this with you. I hope that you enjoy it. If you haven't heard the original Susto version of this, it's episode number two. You can go back and check it out or just listen to this one. So without further ado, here is the resurrection of Dancing with the Devil. 
Friday the 13th, 1979, which coincidentally happened to be a Good Friday, wound up turning into a night that became the stuff of legends. A warning for generations to come that varies from region to region, its ending always the same. A young woman named Magdalena, in this version, had high hopes of attending her first dance at Boccaccio 2000, a popular nightclub in McAllen, Texas. But her strictly religious parents forbade her from doing so, calling the club a place of sin and for the devil. However, Magdalena had different plans. Fed up with her saintly life of obedience, she decided to lie to her parents. She told them she'd be attending an evening church event with friends, when in reality, she could already hear the disco music. After her parents retreated to their bedroom, she slipped on a dress she borrowed from a friend, something her parents would never allow her to wear, quickly did her makeup in the dim light of her vanity lamp, and snuck out. The night was going just as Magdalena dreamt it would. For a moment, she broke away from her group of friends and threw the crowd to drink some water. Suddenly, a hush went over the sounds of the club. She looked up from her drink, and standing in front of her was a striking, handsome man, dressed all in black. Dance, Dance with, with me. me. A command, more than a request. Magdalena had always refused the attention of admirers because of her religious upbringing and the warning of her parents. But her parents weren't there that night. She replied with a whispered yes. He whisked her away onto the dance floor. He held her close and tight, swaying and spinning for what felt like hours to her. For a moment, it was as if only they existed in a dark, secluded pocket outside of this world. But that moment was shattered by shrieks and screams. As Magdalena came out of her trance-like state, she could hear and see onlookers pointing and screaming at the couple. His feet! Look at his feet! She looked down and saw that her handsome stranger's feet were a goat's hoof and a chicken's talon. She had been dancing with the devil. In the time it took for the crowd to disperse enough for security to make it to the cause of the commotion, the man was gone, vanished into thin air, leaving behind only the scent of sulfur and Magdalena unconscious on the floor. She was rushed to the hospital for burns that appeared to be handprints left on her body where the devil held and caressed her. One bouncer reported the heavy metal doors of the club swinging open after the devil had been found out, but convinced himself it was only the wind since he couldn't recall seeing anyone open them. Some say that the club was destined for an encounter with evil due to the fact that the company who owned the club, Edwin Bush Incorporated, shared its name with a confessed murderer. Now, there is only an empty lot where the club used to stand, perhaps waiting for a brave soul to rebuild a club where the devil can dance again. Well, 
welcome back. All right, so before you listen to this part, if you are a best school friend on Patreon, you can go and watch the video version of this. It is up and it's a best school friend exclusive. So if you haven't checked that out, it's patreon.com slash podcast. If not, feel free to keep listening here. Also, I know I haven't mentioned it in a while, but all patrons get the episodes early and ad free. This one is a little late because of my mic issues, but typically they are a full 24 hours and advance and ad free. So with that being said, let's jump into the sources and the links today. When I was looking at this document, the script that I originally had, I realized that I did this before I even had a Patreon, which means that I didn't have Google Doc like I normally do now with all of these links and stuff. So all of these links, this is the first time that I've compiled the Susto Google Doc for this episode is basically what I'm trying to say. So we're going to go ahead and go through them. The first one that I want to share with you all is from UTRGV. It's utrgv.edu slash newsroom, which is looks like their news publication, the newsroom. And it looks like this was written on October 31st, 2019, fitting for Halloween. I love that they did that. Basically just retells the story, but they also spoke to two professors. And it also says here, uh, UTRGV professors explain why Devil at the Disco folktale still teaches lessons after 40 years. And they interviewed a Dr. Mark Glazer and Dr. David Bowles, who has actually been on the show before. So you can go and listen to the interview that I did with him. I was reading through this and I like a lot of what they said. So I'm just going to read a bit from this this piece and it says while the story's origins are unknown the story has become a prominent folktale with the region with lessons based in religion, obedience and trust. And I'm going to talk about the lessons or like the message of this story a little bit later, but planting that seed now. But something that I really liked from here, it says, for his part, Glazer says that if you want to get to know a culture deeply, you should get to know the folklore because the stories are entrenched in daily life, are handed down from generation to generation, and can explain much about a community's belief system. And since there is rarely a true point of origin, these stories have the power to transcend time and place. And this part, it was really cool. It says, folklore is about two things. What's in our hearts and what's on our minds. And the interrelationships between the two makes it very powerful and talked about, Glazer said. Devil at the Disco is an extremely important story in the folklore and in the history of the valley, and it touches on very important dimensions of Mexican-American family life. Part of the interview that they did with David Bowles quotes him as saying that there are there are three possibilities with this. And one of them I thought was really possible because there's so many different versions of this story. And basically, I mean, you can ask almost anybody in Texas and they're going to say that they, they know where it happened, that it happened in their hometown and it's all over the place. But David said that there are three possibilities. He said, one, that the devil actually appeared. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of a skeptic, but that's clearly a possibility, he said. The other one is at the time, Boccaccio 2000 was known for these extravagant pranks or attention-grabbing activities, and it's possible that they staged the whole thing so people would remember this event, he said. They basically pulled a publicity stunt to get people talking about it, even though it was it was, you know, quote unquote, scary. I know that that would be something. If I heard a story, I thought I'd be like, oh, well, I got to see this place where the devil danced, right? And then he says the third possibility, the one that he thinks is closer to the truth is that the girl maybe had a seizure. It's a club. There's lots of strobing lights. So if she happened to be epileptic, it's possible that she started having seizures. That was, that's one of David's 
options for a possibility. I think this is all possible. Definitely, though, the publicity stunt idea is, I think, the most probable one because before then you didn't have social media you had to create a buzz where people were going to talk about it like this news needed to travel by word of mouth so of course you have to create something super sensational to make sure people talk about it which it's not a bad idea to be honest one of the details that always comes up in this story that i think is interesting the traces of sulfur you know that people could smell the sulfur i know we've talked about this before i think in the episode that i did with dan segovia talking about demonic infestations that's one of the signs that there's demonic activity happening is this smell of sulfur and so uh, I have this I just pulled up a link from wiki fandom and all of these again are going in this used to google docs but this is on sulfur and it says it's a non-metallic element that is found normally on the earth's crust areas with volcanic activities and is known in the bible as brimstone that's where i'm guessing we get you know fire and brimstone the most notable use of sulfur in the supernatural world is that it is a key marker of demonic manifestation since it is an identifier of demonic activity it is thus useful for hunters when identifying creatures responsible for supernatural cases it appears that the more powerful the demon the more sulfur they leave behind most demons merely leave traces of the stuff uh, while this demon left piles of it so that could also be part of the story right is it's a physical substance so you can see it if they're saying that a demon has left piles of it that could maybe be you know in some versions of the story people say that there's burn marks where they're danced on the floor then maybe it's not that it's burnt it's it's just it's the sulfur that the devil is leaving behind this continues sulfur is found yeah in powder form whenever demons manifest the smell of rotten eggs is given off by sulfur because of this, part of the rhetoric of hunters is to ask victims if they caught the scent of rotten eggs. I wonder if that's why deviled eggs are called deviled eggs. And I'm going to search it. Why are deviled eggs called deviled eggs? It says the term likely comes from the connection between spiciness and the presumably hot temperatures in hell. But they're not even spicy. They're like tangy. Since the word devil does have negative connotations, though, some groups of people prefer to, prefer to call the dish stuffed eggs, <laughs> salad eggs, or that's what the Christians call it. They're salad eggs. Aw, that would have been really cool if that was why they called them deviled eggs, because they smell like, like sour, sulfur almost. It smells as close to a rotten egg as you can get without eating a rotten egg. I love deviled eggs. Dang, I thought that would have been why it was called that, but that's okay. I'll go ahead and jump to the next one, and this is from Vistaland, because... One of the things that they mentioned, again, in this newsroom link that I wanted to talk about, it was some of the different details also, I forgot if it was Dr. Glazer or Dr. Bowles that mentioned it here, is that one of the versions is that they danced, they started levitating basically, and they were spinning into the air, and also that she was warned not to go out during a holy week. And so I was curious about that, so I googled why shouldn't you go out during the Holy Week? And so this one, it's a Holy Week Traditions and Taboos from VistalandInternational.com. There's a bunch of them, but this one, it's high, it was already highlighted. Wounds take a longer time to heal. Our parents would restrict us from going and playing outside to avoid getting scrapes and wounds due to the belief that wounds heal longer during Holy Week. This is also the reason why traveling is also discouraged as accidents are frequent during this time. I'm not exactly sure what the connection is between like or why would why would they take longer during holy week to heal and like is it because you're healing at the same rate as jesus or like i'm just not sure but this was one explanation and i thought it, this was neat that these there's these traditions and taboos for holy week here moving on to the next one is this is a piece from a website called 
constellatecr.com. It's it's spelled C-O-N-S-T-E-L-L, the number eight, cr.com. There's an entry written by a Marlene Galvan from, it says, Texas Tech University in October of 2021, titled Dancing with the Devil Revisited. And there's a lot of really beautiful writing too. So I would suggest that y'all check this one out too. Uh, she relates a lot of this to like her own personal life and her identity in the valley and i'm just going to read some of it so that you can maybe get a better idea but this says i began with the memory sitting with my mom on her back patio in south texas one summer day in 2017 i mentioned i had come across a story about a young woman who danced with the devil i know that one she paused before she added pero marlene es una historia real en realidad sucedió my mom assured me the veracity of the story could be proven and she knew this because she was there being newlyweds and fans of disco led her and my father to several nights of dancing at local Rio Grande Valley clubs in the 1970s. The story, as my mother relayed, happened in McAllen, Texas in 1979 when she and my dad were in their early 20s. My parents, Mario and Elva, are shown below. And she shared a picture. She goes on to to basically retell the story. You know, it, it's a she writes, it's a story of a young woman who defies her parents' warnings, sneaks out on a good Friday and meets a handsome stranger presumed to be the devil on the floor of nightclub uh, this nightclub changes by region which is true sometimes it is not a nightclub at all but a school dance or a prom so definitely our character is always in that age range of like teenager to very young adult yeah she also says here that in the valley the story takes place at boccaccio 2000 in 1979 in McAllen, while the story exists in you know other regions throughout texas and there were some really important things that she wrote about that I wanted to touch on that I mentioned that I wanted to talk about later. She says the original story relies heavily on common gendered and religious tropes, conceptions of religious duty, parental compliance, particularly for women, pious femininity, meaning good girls don't go out dancing to nightclubs, uh, and perhaps most significantly fear of the stranger. In this story, a half-human, half-animal monster who murders defiant women. This continues, Dancing with the Devil affirms this conception of the stranger as the unfamiliar, the unnatural outsider, enticing women to join him in dance, warning others, this is what happens when you break the seemingly natural boundaries of the community established by traditional religious and cultural institutions. So this is an idea. This is how I honestly perceived this story when, because I've heard this story since elementary. So as I got older, I started to think, and because I heard all these different versions, you know, so many of the details in this story change. I will say right now, two of the details that stay the same are the feet of the devil, that there was a, it was a goat's hoof and a chicken's claw, and that it always happens to a young woman. I don't want to like get on a soapbox or anything, but which I end up doing often on here, but I always thought that was kind of weird because to me, I interpreted it as a warning, yes, for young women, but I thought it was a way to like gain control over girls and women and young women. Like it says here, this is what happens when you break the rules this is what happens when you try to live your life because like who like who among us you know <laughs> who, who among us hasn't snuck out or gone somewhere where we were told we we shouldn't have gone because we you know it's just like a thing that you do it's you know kids being kids you you go to high school parties you sneak into a club when you're underage you know granted this isn't a universal experience i know not everybody does this but i know so many people that did this i can understand why you know it it shouldn't happen but the thing is it's it's across all genders and it's it's across all backgrounds so i that that's kind of what i guess made me feel a certain way was like why is this story always about a girl why why is it always a girl that's in trouble that most of the times in this story that she dies at the end but then i also think 
and it's a very kind of thin, awkward line to walk that this is a real warning uh, because I'll, I'm going to say it very plainly. The world is a much more dangerous place for women. That's not how I feel. That's not what I'm told. That is just statistically true. If you look into the numbers, like it's there. This could just be a real warning to teach girls at an early age. You need to be careful who you are around. I won't say that shouldn't happen because that is the reality of the world. But also, it shouldn't be. Women of any age should be allowed to live their fucking lives, go out and dance, you know? And I hate when those conversations happen. And there's always those questions of, well, what was she wearing? Who was she with? How was she behaving? Was she drinking? Fuck that. That's why this story, like, it, it evokes so much emotion in me. And, and I'm not a woman. I will never under- understand that that experience and that reality. That's why I grapple with this story so much is because it's, I feel like traditionally it has misogynistic undertones and like marlene wrote in here that their the story relies heavily on common gender and religious tropes conceptions of religious duty parental compliance and she wrote particularly for women because that's something that i think a lot of latina and hispanic families experience growing up is it's always like you know the, the the eldest daughter is is always held to such a high strict standard and then usually the boys get to do whatever they want to do but I don't think families do that from a place of just to be mean. Unfortunately, because the world is cruel and scary and bad a lot of the time, these warnings need to be handed out. So I just, I wanted to make sure to to address that because I think it's important to call it out anytime that it comes out. Marlene Galvan, I suggest reading this entry, Dancing with the Devil Revisited. I'm going to move on to the next one though. <laughs> um, and this is from TrueHorrorStoriesOfTexas.com. They actually shared an article from The Monitor by Sean Gaffney from October 2009. I tried to find the archive of this, but I could not find like a free archive of the newspaper. It was from The Monitor. And this is, it says, an eyewitness speaks about the night the devil danced at Boccaccio's. They interview someone who allegedly used to work there when they were a teenager. This is Danny Nava was apparently, a he was a 16-year-old DJ at Boccaccio because as they write later in this piece that this was a place where like high school students can go. So again, reinforcing the idea that the person that this happened to was a, a very young woman. She was a teenager possibly because this was a club where teenagers could get in, where they could drink and party and kind of like sneak around that way. And they also interviewed Dr. Glazer for this one. They write in here again the idea, it says, perhaps the rumor of the devil's cameo was spread by parents hoping to scare children from the nightlife scene. It might also be a reaction to the darker decadence of the end of the glitzy disco era, casual sex, cocaine, and excessive drinking. It also makes me wonder how this lined up on the timeline of of the satanic panic. And if this was in line with that and happening at the same time, it would make sense that this story came out during the satanic panic. There was a lot of sensationalized news that came out at this time. So I feel like this could have just been another story that they threw out there to increase the satanic panic. Nava in this article also says that in San Antonio, there was a club that turned an accidental fire into a promotional event. So maybe Boccaccio... 2000 also kind of capitalized on this idea. Part of the reason I included this link though is because they mention the namesake of the company that owned, well not the namesake because I don't know if it's tied to it, but the fact that the company that owned the club is the name of a murderer. Again, it's Edwin Bush Incorporated. It shared its name with a confessed murderer, and this says, in March 1961, a 21-year-old man named Edwin Bush stabbed an assistant to a London antiques dealer three times, leaving the ivory-handled dagger buried eight inches into the woman's chest. 
he would be one of the final criminals executed in the United Kingdom and the first captured with the help of the revolutionary American facial composite software, the Identikit system. Yeah, this guy was from the UK. I think this just happens to be a coincidence. You know, I don't think Edwin Bush sounds like an extremely rare name. It is an interesting coincidence for sure that it was the same name as the company that owned the club and then this story came out of it. But this guy's all the way in the UK. What what does he have to do with McAllen, Texas, right? But if I'm wrong, I'm interested to know. <laughs> I think it'd be really, really interesting. This continues in a written confession. Bush wrote, speaking personally, the world is better off without me. And then this article kind of finishes off saying that the club is no longer standing. It's just a lot south of Nolana along the west side of North 10th Street. So if anyone's in the valley and you all know where this is, south of Nolana along the west side of North 10th Street. It's supposed to be a vacant lot with overgrown grass. Again, this article is from 2009. So there probably is something there now. I wonder what it is and I wonder if they know the history. So if y'all are in the valley and you know where this is and you happen to drive by, let me know what's there now. Or I can just, next time I'm in the valley, I, I will try and check it out. But if you happen to be there, send me a picture or something. The next link is from a website called borderlore.org. And this one, when I opened it, I thought, oh, you know, it's just, you know, more versions from the RGV or whatever. But this is actually from New Mexico. And I thought that this one was really interesting. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of read it off to you. This was written by Karen Vargas. And it says, did I tell you about the time the devil went dancing? He went dancing at seven bars in one night all across northern New Mexico. And one of the bars was my tío Martín's. The bar was called Los Compadres, and it stood across from Taos Pueblo across the highway and just north of the Rio Pueblo. I thought that this was interesting, the number seven. Correct me if I'm wrong, but normally the number seven is associated with like heavenly numbers or godly numbers or whatever, whatever that means. So I, I don't know, I would have thought it would have been six bars, you know, like 666. Where's the branding, Satan? You got to work on your, on your PR and all that. But anyway, this continues. They say the devil started out that evening at the El Monte Carlo Lounge in in Gesta, then headed south to Arroyo Seco, stopping at Abe's for a shot and a beer. Okay, this sounds like a really good time, to be honest. <laughs> Continues, he then headed over to my Tio Martin's bar in Taos, then further south to the old Martinez Hall in Ranchos. After that, he drove 40 miles through the canyon and danced at Alicia's grandparents' bar south of Española near Nambe. I can't imagine that he didn't stop at the Saints and Sinners in Española for another shot and a beer, but that place doesn't have a dance floor. Still, he had to have gone dancing somewhere in Espa, and anyone from there could tell you exactly where. After that, he headed to Santa Fe, possibly to the bull ring, but I could be wrong. But I'm probably right. <laughs> Somehow he made it back up to the mountain to the Cleveland bar outside of Mora, but I don't know how he had time to do that except for the obvious fact that he was the devil. This very much reminds me, it's giving Santa, um, you know, how Santa can go to all these houses in one night. Uh, the devil can go to all these bars in one night, all these dances in one night. And also, if you rearrange the letters in Santa... It spells Satan, and I've never seen Santa and Satan in the same room, so you tell me, y'all. I think I figured it out. I cracked the code. This continues, I first heard the story in the 1970s, so in the version I had in mind, the devil had gone disco dancing, but in my grandparents' version, he was dancing the traditional couple's dance, La Ranchera cheek-to-cheek -cheek with an unsuspecting woman at Theo Martins, and in my mom's 1950s version, that's the first time I've heard it from 1950s, he was swing dancing with some Bobby Soxers at Andy's La Fiesta, but my devil was much more like Saturday Night Fever. Okay, now I'm also picturing, I don't know if you've all seen these videos where it's different haircuts through, through the decades, through the ages, whatever, and it has, you know, people's hairstyles changing. I can just imagine 
Satan's style throughout the ages. <laughs> There's Satan styles throughout the dance clubs, and it shows him in like a zoot suit and then a disco outfit. I don't know why I'm making the devil sound cute and fun, but oh well. And, you know, this continues to tell more about this entire story, but I thought it was interesting that this was the first example that popped up when I was looking for different versions of this, that it was in New Mexico. The next one is from sacurrent.com, which is San Antonio. It's San Antonio's Dancing Devil of El Camaroncito. So like I said earlier, you know, everybody swears that it happened in their hometown. This is another example This person wrote, one of my favorite San Antonio sagas involves a dubious character known as the Dancing Devil. According to many longtime residents, as well as newspaper articles from the time, a dashing and handsome young man known as El Guapo, dressed in all white, entered El Camaroncito nightclub on Old Highway 90 one night during Halloween of 1975. So this one's said to have happened four years before the one in McAllen and that he was actually dressed in all white. Very interesting. It continues, according to those who tell the story, the man was a fabulous dancer and wooed many of the senoritas in attendance. As the evening went on, however, things took a horrific turn when one of the man's dancing partners happened to glance down at his feet. The woman suddenly screamed out in terror, broke free of the man's grip, and began pointing downward. It was then, amidst a flurry of gasps and shrieks, that the patrons noticed the man's shoes had transformed into long, clawed chicken's feet. This could also just be like, you know, they saw that he had a really nasty feet and he maybe just needed a pedicure. This continues in some versions of the story. His feet had become goat's hooves, perhaps the donkey lady's kin. Oh, like from the donkey lady bridge. Do you all remember that episode? Either way, it was a bad sign to be sure as the attendees were now quite sure they were in the presence of the devil himself. After an uncomfortable silence, the man dashed or perhaps waddled or galloped towards the men's restroom where he vanished out an open window where he where he climbed out of an open window probably in his wake he left a cloud of smoke permeated with a strong there it is sulfuric smell those deviled eggs surely a classic calling card of the horned and forked tailed one if you bring up the subject in the company of old timers you will most likely find someone who will tell you that they knew someone who was there that fateful night and that the incident really did occur Throughout the years, the old building has changed hands many times and was most recently a gentleman's club. There have been claims by former employees that the location is somewhat haunted and that the smell of sulfur still lingers. Very interesting that the smell is still there to this day. What if it's just mold? Who knows? Okay, anyway, the next one is from Confetti Park. And this one, I believe, is from Louisiana. It says, Storytime, the girl who danced with the devil. And they actually also have like their own audio narration of this. It's confettipark.com. This says, In this episode of Confetti Park, we hear an old folktale called The Girl Who Danced with the Devil. It is narrated for you by Catherine Golden, an early childhood teacher living in New Orleans. This tale originates in French Acadia culture. You can find it in the delightful Danny Kay's Around the World Storybook and has been adapted for a Louisiana locality. There you go, Louisiana. In the story, a young girl who loves to dance more than anything is heading off to the Mardi Gras ball with her fiancé. She is warned by her mother not to dance past midnight, otherwise something bad will happen. When midnight strikes, the breathless parties are having so much fun in their whirlwind of dance that they don't mind the chimes of the clock. The door opens and a mysterious handsome stranger enters the room. And then they leave it there so they can tell their their story. But just another version of it happening somewhere. A lot of the versions I hear of it are in Texas. So, But yeah, this is one of the, the few that I've heard of it outside of Texas. The next article, this is from Snopes. It's Devil in the Dance Hall. They do classify or they do rate this story as a legend. 
not as truth, but basically they tell the story. They say how it happens in a bunch of cultures. They mention El Camaroncito. They also talk about one that was mentioned, I believe, in the UTRGV link. I'm not sure if it was Dr. Bowles or Dr. Glazer, but I'll read this to you. It says, It is said that one of the last Sundays before Lent, a servant woman went to confession and communion. Despite the reprimands of her mother, an honest laundress who warned her not to desecrate the day by mundane festivities, she couldn't resist the temptation and was going that same night to a dance at the Vineyard, which was a ballroom situated in an inner suburb of Danzig, which I think was in Poland. This continues, the punishment for her impiety came quickly. Around midnight, she saw a handsomely dressed stranger with black hair and eyes that glistened like onyx, coming towards her to ask her for a dance. She took his arm with pleasure as they began to dance with perfect grace, but faster and faster. That reminds me of, (laughs) if you all have seen Superstar, when she's explaining how her parents died, that the polka music, oh my god, polka music! Is that from Poland? From Danzig? I don't know. Anyway, but that the music gets faster and faster and that her parents dance to death. This continues, one of the musicians watched the dancing people carefully and one can imagine how he felt when he noticed that the stranger, here it is again, had the cloven hoof of Satan. He drew his comrades' attention to it and in the very middle of the waltz they were playing, they changed the tune and broke into a religious hymn. The clock struck 12. The devil pulled his partner closer to him in a frantic whirl, crossed with her to the other side of the room and crashed through the window. The girl was found lying on the green grass in the garden covered with broken glass. The devil had disappeared. Again, so there's that detail. You know, the story is the same. And there's that detail about his feet. And this one is, I think, the only version I was able to find of this story from overseas. I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it's out there. But this was the only one that I could find with the story. And again, this is from Danzig, Poland, I believe it is. The next link I have is from JSTOR, and this is just a sample of this article, but it's titled Some Variants of the Demon Dancer by William Jones Walrich from a book called Western Folklore. And he has some retellings of this, just a couple of them, but I wanted to read the intro that he has for this. It says, The following tales, which I have named Demon Dancer Stories for Convenience, were collected in the small Spanish-speaking villages of the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado. Another example of this outside of Texas, in Colorado. I named them Demon Dancer Tells, for they have no titles as such. Usually, they are alluded to simply as, quote, the story about the girl who danced with the devil, or, quote, the story about the girl who liked to dance too much. Which, like, leave her, let her, let her dance. (laughs) It continues, the variants given here are the most definite I have collected to date. I have heard other versions, but they have varied, but slightly in basic content. Like, every version of the story, they vary in very minor details. It says, all but one of these stories were told to me in the, quote, it really happened form as having happened to a friend of a friend, to a relative, or to an acquaintance in another town. The moral pointed to is obvious as is also a Catholic origin. Again, pointing to the idea of morality when telling this story. But whose morality? Only the girls. Anyway, (laughs) he has a couple of short entries of this story, again, from the same region of Colorado, but with those varying details. The next link I have is from a Lone Star 923 or Lone Star 92.3. It's a radio station, The Basins, number one for new country. And this says, local urban legend of the devil dance at Los Arcos Ballroom in Odessa. And this says, I have heard this story over the years. 
I'm not exactly sure when it supposedly happened, but I believe this event was said to have happened back in the 1980s. I was reminded of the story when someone posted a comment on a public Facebook group. A member of the group asked if anyone had noticed a well-dressed man at the John Party concert at the Horseshoe back at the beginning of the month. Someone in the comments brought up the legend of the old tale of the night the devil supposedly showed up at the Los Arcos ballroom in Odessa. That's so funny. This was like a, one of those missed connections postings on Craigslist or a newspaper. It was after a John Party concert. You smelled of sulfur. I smelled like, I don't know what. I mean, it could have been the devil for all they know. This was in, oh, this was in 2022. This is in on Halloween of 2022 that they posted this. But this continues. Legend has it that on a hot night in West Texas, the Los Arcos ballroom in Odessa was packed. Norteño had the club's dance floor filled with people of all ages. Everyone was having a great time when suddenly a man appeared. No one saw him come into the building. No one could recall seeing him walk through the door but just appeared. No one seemed to recognize him either. In a place like Los Arcos, especially back then, people typically all knew each other or of each other. The women couldn't take their eyes off this man. The tall, muscular man was dressed in black, and apparently, his eyes were captivating. This well-dressed, nice-looking man would only dance with the most beautiful women in the building that night. Imagine being there and he didn't dance with you. I would be pissed. I would be mad. This says when he would dance with these women, it was as if they were the only ones on the dance floor. After dancing with one of these beautiful women, the woman said she was thirsty and wanted a drink. The mysterious man took her to the bar to get her a drink. At the bar, the woman looked down to adjust her skirt and saw what appeared to be a chicken's leg and goat's hoof, which was clearly visible coming from underneath the visitor's pants. She instantly started screaming and pointing at the man's foot, finding it hilarious he laughed and made his way toward the exit, everyone now realizing this was no man. Again, she saw his disgusting feet. As people started to notice his foot, they began yelling, El Diablo, meaning devil, laughing the entire time the man made his way to the door. Everyone that was outside said the man began to flee, ew, jumping on cars like a wild animal, his hoof denting each car he landed on. They watched until he disappeared into the night with the sound of his laughter vanishing into the darkness. That, okay, that one actually creeped me out because I can just vividly see in my imagination this man with animal feet kind of like crawling and creeping around and the, the laughing. I think it's the laughing that gets me more than anything. Someone just laughing off into the darkness of the night. Weird, weirdo energy. The last link that I have here, this was mentioned in the True Horror Stories of South Texas website. It's a it's a link to IMDb. They mentioned this movie, and if anybody can find it, let me know. I would I would love to get my hands on this, to watch this. I think it would be really cool, but this says, Fateful Night at Disco was made into movie. And then there's the IMDb link, but I'm asking because it doesn't have any information about where to watch this. This says, The Legend of the Young Woman's Fateful Dance with Satan made its debut on the silver screen in the 2004 film Dancing with the Devil. Directed by Melinda Maruquin, a mission native, the 22-minute film follows the misfortunes of Eve, a young religious woman recently betrayed by her fiancé. Eve's friends take her out on the town on Good Friday to cheer her up. Eve initially rejects the idea, having promised her parents to attend an evening mass, but she ends up giving in. While at Boccaccio 2000, Eve meets a handsome stranger who is not as innocent as he first appears. Quote, the purpose of this tale is a moral one. I remember my grandmother sitting me down and telling me the story as a warning to behave myself and to always obey my parents or bad things would happen. Marukin said by email from Austin. Most of the people I interviewed who were over the age of 40 claimed they were at the disco the night the devil was seen there and all had different versions of what happened. 
The film has been shown at the Rio Grande Valley's Latino Film Festival, Cine Sol, and at the San Antonio Underground Film Festival. If y'all find this movie, I think I'm gonna have to scour YouTube to see if I can find it. Send it to me. Again, it's from 2004, directed, and I believe also written by Melinda Maruquin, and it's a 22-minute film. So I would love to get my hands on that. Welcome back. Thank you all for listening. Again, I had to record this episode twice because <laughs> I recorded it and then I started editing it. And I I don't know. I think it's because I had my green screen up behind me for the video version, which again, you can watch on patreon.com slash podcast. And I think because of that, the sound was bouncing off from the wall in front of me to the green screen behind me. And it just created this weird echo. And I don't know, I just, I'm that type of person where I would rather redo the entire thing than give you all something that I don't like. So that's just who I am, (laughs) to my detriment sometimes. But anyway, uh, thank you all for listening so much. As always, please interact with the show wherever you are listening. Send your own stories, videos, photos, recordings, whatever you have to me at sustopodcast at gmail.com. In a DM on the socials, it's at sustopodcast on every platform or in a five-star review wherever you are listening. As always, thank you so much to patrons. Reminder, if you are a best school friend, you can watch that last portion of the episode on Patreon. But for now, thank you so much to Every ghoul friend on Patreon, you are Liza, Sadie, Rachel, Alejandra, Luther, April, Mario, Eva, Dee, Victoria, Josette, Sam, Angela and Co., Mandy, Julianne, Karen, Lori, Jeannie, Monica, Desiree, Annecy, Ashes, Neresa, Rachel, Asukena, Javier, Rios, Anna, Christine, Marlene, Diana, Christina, Lainey, Jessica, Desiree, and Gabriela. Thank you all so, so much. I truly appreciate it. I will see you in the next one and... Do you want to go out tonight? Bye.